This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. We've paused a fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them. Thunder Media. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. On this Inside Supercars, the book club continues, and we catch up with Andrew Clark, who's written a number of books in all different sports, but in motorsport particularly. He's the author of the Mark Scaife books, author, and even, at times, a publisher. Once I'd started doing books, it was the process I loved. You know, if I could make enough money just doing books, that's what I'd do. Andrew Clark talking motor racing books and a lot more. And it starts now. On this edition of Inside Supercars, we're continuing our look at motorsport novels particularly, and I'm joined by Andrew Clark, who was, who's done a lot of different novels. And I was going to start with your trilogy to Mark Scaife. Yeah, Scaife's been good to me in that sense, which was quite funny because we had a few run-ins before I did the first book because, you know, Scaife can be a bit of a hothead. Yeah, but we started that, uh, we started negotiating in his 2008, the final season, and then we did the, the picture book, and then I did the autobiography with Penguin, or Random House as it was at the time, um, and then we did another one in the middle of the COVID era with the, uh, with the firm. So, yeah, three books. Um, they've been good to me, and uh, yeah. Interesting. There's a few things that I'm not allowed to tell you. Um, so I've seen everything. I know everything that went on behind the scenes. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, I've got a, a non-disclosure agreement and I can't talk about it. Well, we'll have to dance around that. When was your first book and when was your first published work? Because they're two different things. Oh, they are, yes. Well, I mean, my, my story is funny because I was doing a Bachelor of Science at university and I absolutely detested it. Um, although, given the COVID thing came up, I was doing immunology, so I might have been quite famous then. But uh, I gave that up because I didn't like it and uh, I'd started writing for the university newspaper and then I got a cadetship at an AFL magazine and so I did a year of football and that was in 1987 and unfortunately I got to cover the grand final and Carlton beat Hawthorne, you'll be happy I'm not and I got to cover Hawthorne so I got the losers room and got very few stories published even though it was some of my best work. And then uh, then I went to the VACC uh, and when I was there, a company from America, Bison Books, was looking for somebody to write a book in Australia. So I grabbed it, and uh, so I did a pictorial history of the Australian automobile, and uh, which was good. I got to go out and photograph a whole bunch of cars, and uh, you know, do a, do track the history of the automobile industry in Australia, which is a um, lot longer than people think. When you're writing books, because I know you've self-published, you've worked for big publishing houses and and for magazines. If we concentrate on the Scafe book, how did that idea come about? Was that something you put forward? they put forward to you? What was the background? Well, uh, yeah, we started talking with Scaifey um, about doing a book and then we knew that uh, they were talking to uh, Random House at the time. 
So we talked about doing you know, the picture book because we had access to lots of pictures, obviously. Um, at that time, you know, the Publishing 101 was doing lots of racing books, so we had pictures all over the place. And we knew that you know, the, the big autobiography was going to take time. You know, that wasn't going to come out for a year and a half or something, and we wanted something out the next year. So we did the, um, the illustrated uh, history, which so we grabbed pictures all the way through his career, right from childhood through, uh, and wrote an abbreviated story with, I think it was about 25,000, 30,000 words, and put that together. And then after that was done, when we started on the big book, which was about 120,000 words. So that was my first ghost-written autobiography. I mean, I'd done ghostwriting before um, in my football days. You know, I did Lee Matthews and Dipper and Warwick Kappa. I did their columns and things like that. So I'd been into other people's heads. Getting into an autobiography, I mean, that was something else. And, uh, yeah, it's a really great process. I love it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, people say I start to talk like them when I'm doing their books and uh, eventually it disappears. You know, we can talk about, you know, championship land and all those sort of things. I was getting into all that sort of lingo at the time. So what is the process? Focus on the autobiography. What is the process? How many times do you need to sit down with someone for your writing process? Yeah, well, I can. I've actually got some data on that, which is good. But uh, it's on the Matthew Lloyd book that I did, and um, so we sat down every Monday for ten weeks, and we did fifty-four hours of taped interviews, and uh, all based on a chronology. So um, I'm told that autobiographies people like it to go from start to finish, so which makes it really easy process for the writer because all you got to think about is, well, he was born, he did this, and he did that. So you track your way through it. So there was, a, yeah, for Matthew Lloyd, fifty-five hours. Um, there's about 10 hours of interviews with other people to put other bits and pieces into it. And then the process starts where you sit down and take all of the stuff you've recorded and effectively you're editing it. You know? So um, you're putting it back into, into language, getting rid of all the ums and ahs and the superfluous things and then trying to tighten it up because no one wants a autobiography that goes for 600 pages. I mean, I remember trying to dig my way through John Howard's autobiography once and it was so bloody thick, you, know, you could have built houses with it. It was horrendous. It was 696 pages long and uh, I didn't get through it. So yeah, it's got to be a right size and then you've got to work out how to snapshot the cha- cat chapters to make them small enough so people can read a chapter and put the book down and not feel like they have to re- you know, stop in the middle of a story. So, um, so I learned that process quite quickly with Scafie and because with Scafie's book, we were going to do something a bit different. We were going to talk about concepts and then when we put the first manuscript in, they said, nah, go back and do a chronology. And so we had to then do the chronology. We kept a couple of those little chapters, but the other stuff all got wound into the, um, into the chronology part. What would the scape of book really have looked like if you went with your original concept then? Um, well, it, it obviously had a little bit about, you know, not a little bit, it had a lot about the racing and things, but there were all these other chapters about different things. So, you know, teammates and teamwork, you know, and digging into why he ended up buying HRT instead of letting Roland Dane buy it, um, which was all about his, his mates. It was all about keeping the HRT together as what it was. So that was a chapter. There was business. There was, you know, all sorts of other things, you know, um, a branding, you know, because Scafe's big on brand, you know, I don't know, you know, we had the next Scafe, we had all of these sort of things that were coming up, you know, so it was taking all these little concepts of business and, you know, and it's funny when I hear people talking about how they think Scafe's a crap businessman, um, it's very much not the case. He's very sharp and very astute and he was running quite a successful business even in those HRT days, but factors from outside were, were not allowing the team to achieve what the team needed to achieve. And there was a lot of other scurrilous things going on, but uh, yeah. So he's not as bad. He's not as bad as people think as a businessman. And have a look at him today. I mean, he's incredibly successful. That's what we wanted to delve into. But um, they said, "No, no, you can't do that." So you know, maybe we'll do a business book one day with him. Roland Dane bought HRT. Roland Dane put in a bid to buy HRT. Yeah. So if you remember back to the days, it was um, Walkinshaw had gone uh, gone belly up in in England in bankruptcies um, based on his uh, 
Arrow's Formula One team and the money that was owed. So all of his assets uh, had to be taken away. So Holden took ownership of HRT for a brief period of time, but Holden weren't allowed to own the team. So they split it up. They kept Holden Motorsport and then they made HRT. Roland Dane put in a bid at that time uh, to buy the HRT. And Scaife didn't like the idea. It's funny that they're kind of good, reasonably good mates now, but uh, he didn't like the idea of somebody coming in from outside because he didn't know what was going to happen. And he feared that somebody had come in and, and break up this thing that he'd been such an integral part of and that you know, he felt like he was there and he loved the place. Um, so yeah, he, he said, uh, yep, I'm not going to allow that to happen. He went out to the bank, took a loan, and he did take a loan. It wasn't $1, as people think. It was a really serious loan. And, and bought the team to, to save it based on the fact of you know, the mateship and the teammates. But yes, Roland Dane did try. And then you know, Walkinshaw couldn't come back into the frame until a couple of years later. Um, and that's when he took over Holden Motorsport and then set his eyes on HRT. It's always interesting when you, as you mentioned, have non-disclosure agreements and stories that can't be told at a particular time. I guess non-disclosure agreement aside... What is the story that you just had to not run, but now it could run? It's nothing, unfortunately. <laughs> when, uh, when Tom died, I, I went to Scafie and said, does that void our non-disclosure agreement? No, nah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an enduring one. So until, until Scafie releases me from it, that's it. You mentioned you did the Velvet Sledgehammer. You also have uh, done Olympic athletes and a whole bunch of other athletes. How much harder... Is it? Not, I imagine with football, it's not that hard because you're a football tragic. But when you go to a sport that's not your motorsport, AFL sort of core and, and comfort zone, how much harder is it to work through the novel? Oh, there's a truckload more research required, and, and just to understand the language. Like, a, I mean, you know, you and I have been doing motorsport for a long time. There are certain things we just know. You know, we say something and, you know, people look at you blankly when you're talking to them in the streets and it's like, oh, oh and you've got to explain it. So doing Lydia Lassila, for instance, was exactly the same. You know, she's talking about double triples and you know, all of these sort of things. And I'm trying to work out what a double triple is and all that sort of stuff. But what I had to rely on was the fact that, you know, she knew what she was talking about. So my job was purely to, to edit it and have it make sense. You know, I needed to understand what she was saying, but the language was her. It wasn't me. So my job is to make it sound like her. So, you know, when I start doing a book and I've done my first chapter, I always send it to people who know me really well and ask them, does it sound like me? And if it does sound like me, I've got to go back and start reworking it because it's not meant to sound like me. But there are, there are parts where, you know, you can actually write bits of stuff that you haven't recorded because you, you understand the way they think and talk so well that you can create phrase, you know, sentences or you know, chapters, paragraphs, etc., based on what you know and what you've been told but didn't actually get in the sequence you wanted. I know from my work there's a level of trust and once you have that trust, you have got a very long leash to be able to massage the story where they might not say it that way but it'll still be their voice if you like. Yeah, and that, I mean that's probably the great thing with Scafi is that you know we I think we do have that trust. I mean, yeah, you know, when he got the the contract to do the 2020 book with a firm, you know, he said he wasn't doing it without me, which means that you know, I mean, which is a great feeling for me because well, I, he already had you on the leash with the non-disclosure. Well, yeah, that too, but the uh, the firm one was never going to get into anything like that anyway. Um, but yeah, it was very much about you know he he knows that I know him, he knows that I understand him because you know if you know Scaife, like he's a he's a very particular person. You know, he wants things done in a certain way, you know, OCD over the top, you know, even talking about the fact that, you know, he would never walk out of the house without having ironed a shirt. You know, every shirt that he wears is always ironed, whether it's a T-shirt or whatever. You know, so that level of of detail comes into his life. So the fact that he 
is able to trust me with that speeds up the process. So when he came to me for the 2020 book, it was great, you know, and it kind of tied me through the first little box of COVID, which was nice and uh, interesting. You know, in the office there was sitting with Michael Massey in, in Scape's office at the time. So I got some, spent some good time with Michael as well, which was good. And, and Michael actually helped with the book. He helped pick the, choose the pictures and things. So uh, yeah, it was a good little time, that one, and uh, in, a, in a shit time for the world. You have looked at the international stage as well, as we mentioned, Olympians, but also World Formula One Drivers Champion, Alan Jones. How is that experience? Because he's, uh, when you were working with him, a much older man. And as we know, stories tend to change as you, uh, the older you get, the better the stories become. Yeah, AJ was interesting. I mean, uh, and you know, I've got to thank Mark Larkin for that one, actually. So uh, Larko was talking to, to AJ and Somebody else was trying to do a book with him, and he, he was hating what they were doing. You know, he was, he was talking about things. and saying, "Oh, you're sitting on the grid, and you could feel the veins pulsing in his neck and blood." And you know, AJ said, "That's not me." You know, so he wanted that gone. So anyway, so we stepped in and had a look at what the other mob were doing, and decided to just throw the entire thing out. That um, nothing they'd done or were doing was was what he wanted. So we went back to scratch. Now, obviously, as you say, he's older. His memory's not as good as, say, Scaife. Like, Scaife can remember certain things to, in, in exact detail. If you go and watch the YouTube clips of it, he's, he's spot on. He's got a, you know, like, rock-solid memory. AJ, different story. So AJ involved a lot of research, like digging up all of those old races from the 60s and early 70s, so going through the magazines and things, and then prompting him on it, you know, so we had the pieces to, to talk about. And, you know, once you prompt him and once you jar them, jog the memory, it works. But if you sat there and said, well, tell me what happened in 1971, he'd tell you, oh, I was breathing and I had a few drinks, a few sheilas, as he, as he used to call them. But yeah, otherwise he wouldn't remember anything. So we had to, I had to go down and do all of that research before I sat down with him. And, um, you know, so in, the, in between the times when I went up to the Gold Coast to do the recording, you know, it was all researching the old races um, so that we could get any of his words. How do you go when it might be a, a person that you can't build that relationship with? And how, how do you work through that? Or is that just something you just have to pull up stumps? Uh, it wouldn't work. You couldn't do an autobiography if, that, if you didn't build a rapport with them. So, you know, and um, I mean, I've been lucky with some of the people who I, who I didn't know when I started with them. So, you know, like Lydia Lassler, I didn't know her when I started. Um, and that came about because her manager was Mark Scaife's manager. Um, so that's how that one came about. And then, you know, Cameron Miller popped up um, to do a book on, on his life with his son who died from congenital heart disease. You know, so I had to build a rapport with them to make it work. So you, you almost build a friendship at the time, but uh, you know, you, you're almost like a psychologist. You know, you're dropping into their head to try and understand their, their, their psyche and their, and their thing. And then you've got to go out and research the bits you need to research so that you um, don't look like an idiot in front of them. But you also know when they say something, you, you don't look blankly back at them um, in that way. Um, but yeah, if you can't build a rapport, you can't do an autobiography. Moving on from people to things... You have, over the last few years, had a very successful Bathurst book and one that I do need to disclose that I fight over with Peter Norton on who took the cover photo on most years. But Peter doesn't jealous. I do notice that. Credits have been very lacking. But in all seriousness, it's a, it's a very different type of book. I guess it's the balance of the pictures telling the story and the words telling the story. But it's not the story of the race; it's the story of the event. Yeah, it is very much so. It's uh, and it's good. I'll go, I did my first Bathurst book in 1990 when I was with Chevron, and I, and I watched that process, and and I thought they actually went into too much detail, you know. And that book didn't come out till like March or April, the year after. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. You know, the race is in October. Get it out for Christmas. 
you know, so when we when I was running my own business, we looked at it and said, well, you know, we can do that. We can get out before Christmas. So within a week or two of the race, we'd have the whole thing written, designed, laid out, and, and off to the printers, which was amazing. You know, we still struggled to get it back in time for, for Christmases, but we did and got it out. And these days with Alan and Supercars Extra, you know, it's, uh, it's easy there because I don't have to manage the process now. I just write the stories help with some of the picture selection and drop it in and I'll make sure I go and put your name in the sky sheet for this one. But Actually I only did start photos. Matt Norton award winner Matt Norton took my finished photo which I've taken for many many years for, on behalf of Peter. Oh well just as well because he is an award winner now and you never won an award for your photos. Yeah so yeah, and it's an it's interesting thing as you say like you know we in the old days, you know, we'd delve back through the Touring Car Championship that led into Bathurst. Now we just worry about the race weekend itself. So, you know, we start from the time we get there, so we don't have a word written before we turn up. And then each day, it's, you know, it is about what happened on the track, but what happened at the venue. The photographs tell that part of the story more than the words. You know, the, the photographers are out there shooting the crowd and, you know, shooting all those other little bits and pieces, and then we tie the story in through it. You know, so that ends up at about 40,000 words, I think, which, um, which is written within about, um, well, this year was a bit slow. It took me eight days to do that this year. So, yeah, it was done you know, in the two weeks after the race. For one reason or another, it's been a little bit slow this year, but you know, it'll still be uh, available for Christmas, which is good, because um, that's always the goal. If you can get out for Christmas, you know, that's your peak selling time. And, uh, you know, and, and for me, it was about you know, how can you do that? And, and modern technology allows us to do it so easily. What is the book? The person, the the event, the thing you do want to write but just haven't either had the time or had someone say to you, go for it. Well, I do have plenty of ideas, obviously, because that's what I do. Um, I'd, I'd love to write one book on the five most important races every year. So cover Indianapolis, cover the Monaco Grand Prix, cover Bathurst, Le Mans. What was my other one? I can't remember. Oh, one of the rallies, the, um, the Monte Carlo rally probably. Um, and then there's a few others that you can dip in and out. You know, like I love the concept of Pikes Peak, for instance. You know, so you can drop all that in. So I'd love to do that as an annual book. Unfortunately, the air flights are um, killing me on that concept, so that disappears. And Monaco and Indy being on the same day. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a bit of a hassle. But I'd have to subcontract out one of those to somebody. I'd, I'd probably go to Indy and send somebody off to Monaco because it's so fucking expensive. <laughs> so yeah, I'd do the cheaper one. But uh, you know, yeah, so something like that'd be great. But uh, I love music as well. So I've talked to a couple of people about doing some music books, which is good. And I've got a couple of AFL books on the that I'm working on at the moment, which is a good bit of fun with their with their old mate Luke West. The idea of writing a book was that your idea. I want to write a book. When you started, when you saw, you saw what you were actually doing for your periodicals. Did you say, I want to be a book writer and that's a goal I wanted to achieve? No, it was way too early in my career for, to think like that. It was just an opportunity was there. And um, my view on life is if you see an opportunity, you grab it. If you don't grab it, then you might not ever get that same opportunity again. So, you know, I grabbed that. I did that, um, which was good. And I actually uh, finished that on, you know, in the morning of my first wedding, which was that uh, funny. Um, so I said that off. And anyway, but by the time it came out, I was up at um, Chevron Publishing doing Racing Car News. And then the books there came up. So there was the, the Bathurst book there and the Motoring Yearbook and Australian Motor Racing Year. So they came in. And, and then, you know, when I got out of there, you know, more than a decade later and started my own thing, it was done just to do books. So, you know, we started a business to do the Supercar Yearbook and the 1K Bathurst book series and that ran for four or five years before uh, um, you know, the partnership breakdown happened which was you know, never a good way to go it's almost like a marriage breakdown it was but, yeah, anyway. but yeah, once I'd started doing books it was the process I loved you know, if I could make enough money just doing books that's what I'd do and so that's the question 
you, you've had your own publishing company and, and you started Publishing 101 around the time that everyone says book publishing's dead. But you were doing glossy magazines and doing a number of yearbooks and event books. Yeah, I think people talk about publishing being dead, but I don't think it is if you do it right. You know, the, the sales are down, yeah, yeah, you've got to be a bit more creative about what you do, but you can still do it okay and you can still make money as we're showing with the, your current Bathurst book. You know, we sell enough of that and enough advertising to make it work. You know, auto action that I work for, you know, still produces the hard copy magazine despite the fact that people think they don't work and it does work. But you've got to do it right. And uh, if you sit on the fence and think, oh, you're going to die. You've got to be multimedia these days, you know, which is why I do a podcast. It's why I'm sitting here talking to you on a podcast, you know. You know, I've got um, all sorts of other little projects and programs that are going across social media and all those other things. Because, you know, if you want to sell your products, your hard copy products, you've got to be in all those other places to do it. Yeah, if you're linear, you're going to struggle. And I think if you're linear in anything, you know, if you're just an online thing, so, you know, an online thing, all I'm doing is online words, you're going to struggle. Um, you've got to have multiple things to your bow to succeed. How has a driver changed if we look at a, a current driver and, and the way social media and the way they're presented in the world changed to the, the SCAFE and how much different would the book have to be? I'm thinking Shane Van Gisbergen, but Shane Van Gisbergen isn't the typical young driver. He's atypical of the young driver, and probably that's why he is where he is at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, drivers have clearly changed. I mean, back in the day, which is where I built my relationship with guys like Scaife and Glenn Seaton, you know, we spent a lot of time together in those days, and they didn't have all of the corporate engagements that they've got, you know. So you come to a track now, and you virtually can't find a driver because they're off signing autographs, they're up in their corporate suites, um, or they're having physio done to try and get ready for the race or whatever. So we don't get as much time with them as we used to. So we don't build the same kind of relationships that we had in the past, um, which is kind of what I don't – what's what I – oh, how do you say How do you say it? It's what I don't like about the sport today is that they feel like they're inaccessible – um, whereas in the old days, you know, they were very accessible and, and we got to understand them. And, you know, drivers don't like sometimes what we write about them, but you know, we don't know them the same way we used to. But they had the shot at you and then two minutes later you were back talking to them about the next thing. Yeah. Now you might not see them for three days because the other thing that used to happen is the uh, media managers took them to the media and, and invited you to share stories and work together in getting them profiled. Now it seems to be the exact opposite. They just want their profile to be whatever the Insta and, and Twitter have. Well, absolutely. The media manager's job these days is to, um, is to monitor their beha- you know, where they're going on a day, so take them from scene to scene to scene, but to build their social media profile. And for some reason, people think that that's meaningful. Whereas, and then they sit and complain about social media when they get slammed on it. Well, you know, we don't, we've got a medium in terms of proper publishing. So whether you're a, you know, a, a dedicated website or whether you're a, a podcaster or whether you're a thing, we have standards. We have ethical standards that we need to work by, um, which is all based around honesty and integrity and all those kind of things. Social media doesn't have any of that. So it staggers me that these people, the young kids, the young drivers today, will play around on social media the way they do and then complain when it comes back and bites them. If you don't like it, don't go in there. You know, you don't, if you want to get bitten by a lion, jump, into that, jump across that fence or wait at Taronga Zoo and it'll jump across the fence for you. But, um, you know, get in there and play with the lion and see what happens, you know, and that's social media. Um, I actually think it's one of the, the worst things that's ever happened to the world is social media. It's, um, it's given people a place to be really negative and really nasty in an anonymous way, and I think it brings out the worst in people. 
Well, it's not anonymous when you have to put your name on the byline or with, and that's where, you know, there is accountability. You've done many books. We haven't talked about Greg Murphy, who I know you and he had a an interesting relationship right throughout the journey as well, and then one about Jason Richards, who, of course, his life came tragically short. Oh, yeah, almost 10 years ago. Um, so I think it was 17th of December 2012. So, yeah, and that, and that was interesting. That was a tribute book that we did to him. And um, yeah, when I was talking to his wife and, and manager about doing it, it was really about um, giving a story to his children. So we didn't make any money out of that book. Um, it was done because, you know, Jason was a really good bloke. Um, and it was, a, it was a tragedy. So we did this book. I didn't lose money, by the way. Yeah, we made this book so that his daughters had a story. And uh, so that was a really good thing to do. And interestingly, his manager was Murph's manager, which is how, you know, they all get seem to relate. So, you know, the biggest thing you need to know if you want to become a, an author is to know the managers of the drivers, not the drivers. You know, the managers are the ones who make the decisions. And, uh, you know, and even, yeah, even Matthew Lloyd's one, you know, I went to school with his manager at the time. So it was really easy. Where did I go? I was going somewhere. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So Murphy and people like that, you know, you, yeah, you just get in there, you tell the stories. And, and, and it was interesting. So, you know, I started working for Auto Action this year, which is the first time I've ever worked for it, which is quite funny given how long I've been around. And when I was talking to Bruce about it, I said, you know, well, my goal in life is I don't want to be liked necessarily, but I want to be respected. You know, I want to be able to tell my stories and, and have people respect that I'm telling what I believe is the truth. I mean, if it's not the truth, then they need to tell me what the truth is so that I can report that. Um, and you always hear people complaining, you know, and there's certain team owners and things will always complain about what you, have, you know, what you don't know and blah, 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 blah. Well, we don't know if you don't tell us. So when I come and, you know, put my microphone under your mouth and ask you a question, you tell me the truth and then we're okay. If you want to lie to me, then, you know, then the truth won't come out and it'll, you'll get a story that you don't particularly like. So all we ever ask, I think, journos, is we just want people to, to be honest with us and we want them to tell the truth. And I've got no dramas if they say, I don't want to talk about that. That's fine. That's your right. But don't ever lie to me and, and don't ever try to lead me down a path that you think you want me to go down if it's not true because we'll always find out. And on that note, <laughs> we will always find out. Andrew Clark, thanks very much. Now, out of that plethora of books we talked about, most of them are still available in back issues or online. Yeah, you can get um, all of them on ad42.com.au, which is my website. Everything but the um, picture book of Mark Scaife. Unfortunately, if I need to do reprints of those, they're about $250 a copy to print. So uh, if you want to sling me 500 bucks, I'll print you one. But uh, otherwise, just uh, go scrolling on YouTube for that one. Uh, sorry, not YouTube, eBay. But yeah, otherwise, you know, all the Penguin ones, the Random House, they're all available there. But, um, you know, you can always buy them through my website. And I like that because I make a little bit more money. Andrew Clark, always a pleasure. Have a great off-season and we'll see you again in Newcastle. Yeah, thanks, Craig. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, going to be a funny off-season, isn't it? Anyway, beautiful. Next week on Inside Supercars Book Club, we continue with the sleuth, Aaron Noonan. The Holden Racing Team's cars. It's that book. It's its fault that the rest of this stuff's flowed. That's coming up next week. That's all we have time for this week on the show. Keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more. Or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. 
After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. Would have paused the fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them.